Father, we thank you for your mercy that has redeemed us from our sin, that has rescued us from your just and righteous and holy wrath against sin. We thank you that you have rescued us at great cost to the Son of God, you, our Lord, who took on flesh to stand in our place, to receive our condemnation, to bear it fully, that we would not have to, to be buried and to rise again from the grave, that we might have life in you, that we might have a hope and a future, a promise that is certain, that we might have the gift of the Spirit, as we just sang, not only to apply these promises to us to shine in our hearts the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, not only to grant us the gift of faith and repentance, but to preserve us in it that we might be spared from the deceptions of Satan, that we might be held in the truth, and that we might be preserved faithfully to the end to stand in your presence, holy and blameless with great joy. So we thank you for these tremendous gifts. We do pray that you would sustain us in them as you do through your word as we spend time with you throughout the week, but particularly as we gather as your people. So we ask now as we look at your message, O Christ, to the churches, that you would guide us according to the truth, that you would teach us, and that you would glorify your name in our hearts, that we might live and hope more faithfully to you, our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in whose name we pray, amen. Open up your Bible, if you will, again, of course, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, as we continue to look at these churches. Let me just say, and I, I wonder if that's where some are even this morning. We had a, there was a successful camping trip, uh, so Steve and Patty, uh, for those, if anybody here was here who was a part of that, uh, it was a good group. Here it was a great time. Hopefully we'll be able to make it uh, next year. And I want to say uh, publicly, we didn't last week, we'll send an email out, but again, thank you for all of those who, uh, some of who are here, many are out today, but uh, who were a part of the Susan Heck conference, and uh, it was a wonderful time. The ladies were and here, and the ones who came uh, were greatly blessed, and so we're just thankful for all the hard work that went into that, but it certainly paid off. Uh, it was uh, successful in that sense, and so... Uh, we hope it was successful also in the spiritual sense, and we trust that it was bearing fruit in the hearts of all those who were there. Well, with that being said, let's uh, return once again to the book of Revelation, and particularly uh, to Christ's message to the churches, and once again to the message to the church at Philadelphia. Christ's message to the church at Philadelphia. And we are going a bit slower through this uh, passage because there are so many uh, issues, there are so many topics that are important to get a better handle on uh, that are resident, that are inherent in his message, and that uh, so we want to take time to understand it. Uh, and so we are going a little bit slower. We finished up last week looking at verse 9, and, and there in trying to understand his promise to the church, namely that those of the synagogue of Satan, some would be given and come bow down uh, to the church and know that Christ had loved them, that they in fact were the ones who belonged to God. And so it was important there to be clear about the distinction of that promise that Christ is giving to the church in Philadelphia as compared to the promises that he gave to Israel through the prophets in the Old Testament. And to answer the question, what is the relationship of ethnic Israel to the church, to believing Jews and Gentiles? And so we have some of the similar things to be careful about, issues related to the end as we come here to verse 10. And really what all of Scripture, for that matter, and all of the New Testament, and really all of Scripture from the beginning of the promise ever since the fall, that Christ would undo the works of Satan, that he would destroy him, and that he would bring about his promise to undo those works and keep for himself a, a people, a rescue for himself a people from the consequences of sin to create a new humanity out of the one that fell in Adam. And so really from that promise on, there is the reality that God's people live by hope. We mention that often, but 
uh, there's sometimes that that is particularly brought out. And it's important to remember that because being a Christian in this world comes with a cost. We, we frankly, as the American church, know little of that cost, but the church throughout the ages and the church in the world in different parts now understand that cost to a greater degree. In other words, that cost being that the name of Christ brings in their life greater suffering. The loss of material goods, the loss of physical safety and well-being. There's, there's persecution that comes. There's a loss of this world that comes with naming the name of Christ. That's why it's such a travesty when the gospel goes out and is preached uh, from the, to the church or to, to the world that says that believing in Christ is going to be essentially just uh, the realization of all of your dreams and your desires for this world. That is blasphemy. That is direct opposition to the message of Christ and certainly of the message of Christ to the church. The message of the gospel is that by losing everything in this world, indeed bringing yourself into a position of hostility to the world in the sense of to receive the world's hostility, is a glorious exchange because in gain for that you receive forgiveness of sin, a part in the kingdom that is eternal, redemption that cannot be taken away. The freedom to live as God created us to live in holiness and righteousness and obedience and truth. And the promise that in all of our failings a perfect atonement has been made and he will bring us safely to our glorious home. That is the message of the gospel, the one who is willing to exchange their life for Christ. And it is a gospel that requires then perseverance because though it is a message of grace, it is a message of grace that comes in light of our great sin and our great failings. And our great condemnation. And so it's not a message that is gladly received by the world. And so they actually hate that message. And they hate God's people who bear it. And so we need perseverance. We need perseverance. Perseverance is a necessary character of true faith. It's the one who endures to the end. And this faith is encouraged then by the promises of God. And again, the promise is essentially this. There's nothing you can give up in this world that isn't more than worth what you gain. In other words, there's nothing that we can give up that the worth of what we gain doesn't far surpass. And so here, is, that is at the heart of the promise that he gives to the church at Philadelphia uh, in verse 10. Let me go ahead and read uh, just verses 9 and 10 out of Revelation chapter 3, and then we'll consider this promise more closely. So beginning in verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is an incredible promise. And let's just begin by noting this, that he is, you would look at the first word there, verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. So now he's, he's grounding the reason that he has just made that promise and the promise that he's also to make, a second reason that he is giving for why they are worthy of receiving this promise. It's a promise then related to their faithfulness. They are being tested and they have been tested and they've proven themselves to be faithful. They've proven themselves to be faithful to the message of Christ, to the gospel, to the word of their salvation. Their faith is being tested and it is proven, being proven to be real. And that is, again, the common experience of Christian throughout the ages. That God brings tests, he brings trials to faith to prove that it is real. But here the promise is that whatever you're enduring now in the proving of your faith, you will be spared then as a result, as a reward from a greater suffering that is coming. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. One has summarized it well by saying the church was faithful to Christ in the time of trial. He will in turn be faithful to them in the time of their great trial. In short, as you've been faithful to me, as you've been faithful to my word, as you've been faithful to my testimony, as you've been faithful to all that I've required of you, I will be faithful to keep you from what is to come. That's the promise, and it's in a nutshell. Now let's notice then the first commendation that he gives to them. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. You have kept the word of my perseverance. What exactly is that commendation? 
Well, this phrase is only used here, and it can be understood in one of two ways. It could say that they have been uh, faithful to keep the command to be obedient to him, the, the command to persevere in the light of affliction and in the light of difficulty. Or it could mean this, that they have been faithful to follow the example of Christ as it's laid out in the testimony of his word, laid out in the testimony of scripture, laid out in the testimony of the apostles and, and those who have demonstrated that same kind of faithfulness to Christ. What does he mean exactly here? Well, the idea of perseverance is, of course, key throughout Scripture and key particularly in the book of Revelation. The idea of persevering under trial, the idea of remaining faithful and diligently faithful to what you have been called to. Patience is at the very heart, spiritual patience, of what it means to follow Christ. And it's at the very heart of his messages, really, uh, to each of these churches. He uses this term, just give you a few examples here, in verse 2 to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance, or your steadfastness, or your patience under difficulty and under trial. I know what you've done, and he gives that as a commendation to them, as a, as a word of testimony of their faith. He says again, uses the word again, and you have persevered and endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary under the trial, under the cost of what it means to name my name. He uses it later on in chapter 13 to say that those who are enduring the Difficulties under the kingdom of Antichrist. If anyone is destined to captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Here is what they have endured. Here is the testimony of their endurance. In chapter 1, verse 9, he uses it to speak of Christ. He says in verse 9 of chapter 1, I, your brother, it's John, it's I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, of Jesus uh, because of the testimony of Jesus. In other words, here he's saying that I too am having to persevere as Christ persevered. I too am having to endure as I'm writing to you to encourage your endurance and your perseverance. And here then in chapter 3, the idea seems best to be then that it is the commendation that they have followed the example of Christ. That they are enduring and in enduring demonstrating his life in them. This is a particular point that little personal pronoun my there then is immediately next to and modifies the idea of perseverance so it's the word the word of what the content of which is my perseverance the word of my perseverance of how I endured this is the risen Christ speaking therefore it's the word that testifies to the perseverance of Christ they are following his example and in following his example demonstrating his life in them and this, again, is what we are called to. Not merely the church at Philadelphia, but the church universal, the church throughout the ages. Listen to the way that Paul encourages the church at Thessalonica, who was enduring much of the same kind of persecution as those who were in Philadelphia, at the hand of the Jews particularly. He says, May the Lord direct your, heart, direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ into the steadfastness of Christ in this sense that you would display that steadfastness that Christ displayed as he came to endure the hostility of men for you, as he came to endure for you and in your place. He says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. He says as he's encouraging them to persevere under trial and he's saying that, that by, by acknowledging Christ it's going to be the loss of everything. He said that in chapter 10. He gives a whole chapter in verse 11 of saying here's example of those who have persevered because the end was greater than what they endured here. And he says and the ultimate example of that is of Christ. You're familiar with this passage in Hebrews 12. Therefore we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the throne on high. That's the idea here. 
You have fixed your eyes on Jesus, he's saying. You have been faithful. You have fixed your eyes on the one who has gone before us. You have laid hold of what he's accomplished. And you are looking to participate in that same future joy that he was willing to endure to gain. As our mediator, as our sacrifice, as our hope, as the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that's where Christians must look. Christ calls us to bear nothing that he has not himself also endured for us. And so we should not be surprised then if Christ has endured the suffering of the world for us that to follow Christ means that we are going to be called to the same endurance, the same requirement to persevere, to be patient. This is throughout the New Testament but stated explicitly by Jesus in a message to his disciples. In John 15, let me just remind you of these familiar words. He says in John 15, this is of course a part of his, what's known as the upper room discourse, his last words to his disciples before he was to be handed over and betrayed by Judas. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your words. In other words, don't be surprised at the hostility of the world when you name the name of Christ. And what is our response to that hostility of the world? It is to follow the example of Christ. To follow the example of Christ, to follow the example of him who went before us. And he's saying this church has done that. They've been mistreated. They've been maligned, they've been rejected, and yet they have remained steadfast. Steadfast. As a matter of fact, in Peter, 1 Peter, you'll remember this, some of you. He says in verse 21, speaking of the same to a church who's called to suffer at the hands of an unrighteous world. He says, you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. In other words, they were again faithful to this example. They were faithful to follow the example of Christ. And what does that mean then? In the, well, just using the context of 1 Peter alone, certainly we get the idea that it means bearing up under the suffering of Christ when they want to put you in prison, when they want to silence you in any kind of way, when they want to, as they did to the disciples, beat you with rods or whatever persecution might come. But it means this as well if we are to persevere and follow the example of Christ. It means that we are to live righteously and bear whatever God ordains for our life when we have difficulty as a spouse, he mentions in 1 Peter. He says in the same way in 1 Peter, wives who live with unsaved and ungodly husbands are to follow the example of Christ in how they live humbly and meekly trusting Christ in a difficult situation. He says that if you are an employer under some kind of authority that you are then to follow that example of Christ and persevere by submitting, he said, even to those who are unrighteous, submitting faithfully and following Christ and persevering following his example. He means that, he says, as a citizen of a country, when you have exhausted any means you can for change in your culture and yet are the victim of the kind of oppression that comes of a world system that is against the name of Christ, you are to bear that well and follow the example of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2. That's what we're called to as Christians. And he says here that that is what this church had been called to at the persecution that was coming their way and they have endured it well. And it is the grace of the promise of the end of that endurance that gives strength in the midst of the trial. We don't know what God's going to call us to. We again, we certainly suffer very little here. We have many who have taken risk even within our own congregation and certainly the church at large to not bow the knee to the the ideologies of the world that want to redefine God's creation in the world of 
sexuality or in the world of justice and those kind of things. And we've had people who take their stand and are willing to suffer the consequences and by God's mercy we're endured. But those are only going to increase as time goes on, as culture gives given more and more over into its wickedness. And Christ calls us to persevere. And he says, as Peter says to the church, uh, the, the people he was writing to, don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is what it means to follow Christ in this world. And we are called to persevere. And we are called to persevere by the strength that he gives, by the sharing in his life. And we are called to persevere by looking to him who has gone before us. And that's what he's saying here. You have kept the word of my perseverance. You have kept the word of my patience. And so then he gives them a promise. He says, I also then will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is a monumental statement and as you can imagine has garnered a great amount of discussion. A great amount of discussion as to what exactly is he promising to this church and to churches and to Christians. Now the part of the discussion mainly centers around the idea of how does this relate to the doctrine of the rapture. The rapture of the church, which is simply a a doctrine that relates to Christ coming to receive his people to himself when he calls them out of this world. It is 1 Thessalonians 4 being snatched up to meet the Lord uh, in the air. So how are we to understand that here? Is he promising then that Christians will not endure the future time of judgment that is to come upon the world? Is he saying that they'll be spared from that? Is he saying that God is going to call and Christ is specifically going to call his people to his presence in such a way that they will be spared from this future time? Well, there's a few ways that it's taken. A futurist or certain dispensational understanding sees it as a promise of just that, that the church will be removed from the earth. Those who are believing in Christ and united to Christ at the time of his coming will be removed from the earth before a period of particular and set judgment of God is unleashed on unbelieving men. An idealist or and sometimes covenantal understands it and says it's a promise to keep Christians who suffer through the ages faithful to the end. Those who the suffering is going to come through the ages and therefore it's a promise that they will be kept faithful to the end of succumbing to the test, of succumbing to failure. A preterist, as you remember, are those who hold that all of the promises here and all of the destructions were actually fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem near the end of the Jewish war at that time. And so therefore they believe that it's a promise to keep first century believers safe during the destruction of Jerusalem and later imperial persecution that would come against the Jews and then the church. Now, in order to work through this and understand the Lord's statement, there are a couple of key questions that we have to ask. And I don't know that we're going to finish it all today, but we'll definitely finish it uh, by next week or next week. But here are the couple of questions. One, what is the hour of testing? Is it something that is being experienced by them now? Is it something that has been experienced by them in the past? Or is it something that will be experienced in the future? What exactly is this testing? And what does he mean by I will keep you from it? Does it mean that he will keep them from experiencing that hour of testing to be totally removed from the experience of it or remove some certain aspects of that experience? Or does it mean that he will keep them safe through the hour of testing and through the experience? So those are some of the key questions. Well, let's begin by this. By trying to understand what does he mean by the hour of testing? The hour of testing. What is this hour of testing? What is this this period of time that is to come upon the earth? Well, let's just notice at first a few observations, namely five. First of those is this. It is a definite time. It is a definite time. It is not a cyclical time. It is not a reoccurring kind of persecution. He's speaking of a definite time. Notice what he says. The hour of persecu- or testing. The hour of testing. 
You might be familiar with this in your Bible, but certainly our is used literally. But it's also used most often or very often as a general kind of marker of time. It can be used to mark a time of day, just to give you a sense of it. In Mark 11, since it was already late and it says since it was already being the hour in that context, meaning it was already the evening, it was already late in the day. It's used broadly as an indistinct period of time, such as when Jesus said to his disciples, could you not keep watch for me with one hour? Meaning not merely 60 minutes, but this time that when I needed you for this short required time. It's often used in relation to the final period of judgment, the hour that is to come upon the world. That's the idea here. It's a particular hour. It's a, it's a period of time that has unique characteristics to it. It's a period of time that is marked by particular actions of God upon the world. Upon the world. That hour that is to come. The hour that is to come upon the whole world. So it can be used to speak of an indistinct but short period of time, rather condensed period of time. It could be used broadly just to refer to a general time, such as the time of the day. It can be used to speak of a specific period of time that is marked by unique characteristics. And here, those characteristics are of testing, of testing the world. Let me just give you a few examples of that. We won't go through all of them. It says in chapter 9, verse 15, the angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, they are a very specific use of it. That very moment when God had determined these particular judgments were to come upon the earth, namely that they would kill a third of mankind. In chapter 11, verse 13, he uses it in this way. He says, and in that hour, in that appointed period of time there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and a thousand people were killed in the earthquake and so forth in chapter 14 verse 7 he said with a loud voice fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come in other words that time that was set aside by God uniquely to bring destruction on the unbelieving world it had come and it was going to be revealed in these bowls of wrath that were yet to still be unleashed on the world and so he says this is the hour has come, the hour of judgment. It was going to take place in, over a period of time, but it was a period of time marked by this judgment. And there are other examples. So again, this isn't a description of general cycles. It isn't a general principle of suffering. He's saying, no, there is a definite time. It is a time determined by God. It is a time with specific characteristics. It is a time that will be marked off from other times in the history of the world. It will be a unique time. It will be a definite time. It will be the hour of testing. The hour of testing. Note secondly then also that it is a future period. He says that it is an hour of testing that is about to come on the world. The hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world. In other words, it's an hour that's not yet here. It's a not yet an hour that is not yet past. It is an hour in the future. It is an hour yet to come. It is something to be expected. It is something to be anticipated. It is something that could come when God at God's appointed time. That we do not know about, but it is yet future. At an unexpected place in the future or time, this hour is going to come. This period is going to come that God has determined. And again, I just want to give you a sense of the word there that's translated as about. We won't go through all of the nuances, but let me just give you a couple here. In Matthew eleven fourteen, he says this, and if you are willing to accept it... John himself is Elijah who was to come, who, who was about to come, who was anticipated to come, who was the hope and the anticipation of God's people to come. There he's referring to the characteristics of John, the ministry of John the Baptist. It was an anticipated time which had come and was being characterized through the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, another simple example in John chapter 6, he says this. In John chapter 6, verse 14, again, this is just the general idea of the word. He says, therefore, when the people saw the sign, here speaking of Jesus having fed the thousands which he had performed, they said, truly this is the prophet that has come into the world. 
And they wanted to come then in verse 15, perceiving they were intending to come and to take him by force and to make him king and he withdrew to the mountain. In other words, they were about to come. That's our term. They were going to come. He saw an event that was about to happen that, was, that they were intending to bring about that had not come about yet. And so he had to escape from it. He had to remove himself from that situation. Well, the idea here is then this is an hour that is future. It is about to come. It's, it's anticipated. It's going to, to come upon the whole world, but it's not here yet. It's not anything that can be identified yet, either to that church or us or the church through the ages up to this point. This hour hasn't yet come. It's a future period. It's a definite period. It's a future period. It's also universal, and this is important. Look at what he says. The hour that is about to come in the future upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. It could be translated here, the whole inhabited earth. The whole inhabited earth. Now some want to limit that if you're a preterist to only the inhabited earth and that it would be the, this, the, the, the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome because that was the known inhabited earth at the time and the perspective he's saying it's written from that perspective. And in fact, a similar use of this phrase, not exact but similar, is used in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 where it says the census went out into the whole inhabited earth and they say, see it doesn't mean the whole earth globally, it means what's happening there and their perspective particularly there in the perspective of Jerusalem however that's not the way that we would understand it here and let me give you a few reasons why one is there it was limited specifically to the sphere of Roman rule it was a census of those who were in the Roman kingdom in the Roman world in other words the statement is limited by the sphere of power of Caesar's power which only extended throughout the realms of Rome not to the whole earth here it is the Lord of all of the earth who is speaking to all the inhabited earth which is to be throughout the rest of Revelation the objects of his wrath and the objects of his judgment. Revelation is not limited to a particular point on the globe but it is the whole of the earth, the whole of the inhabited earth by the Lord of the earth who has no limits to his jurisdiction, who has no limits to the areas in the, of his rule and of his authority. So in other words, then it's a period that is coming upon the whole world. It's not something specific to the church in Philadelphia. It's not something specific to any point on the inhabited earth but it is the whole world. So it is a definite time, it is a future time, it is something, it is universal, it is directed to the whole world. And note this, it is directed towards primarily the unbelieving. Where do we get that? Look again at verse 10. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour that is about to come, that hour that is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. That little phrase there, those who dwell upon the earth, is used consistently throughout Revelations, particularly to identify the unbelieving on the earth at the time of this hour, at the time of this particular period of God's judgment. It's consistently used that way. Let me give you again a few examples. The prayer of the martyrs in chapter 6, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on who? Who does he say there? Those who dwell on the earth, the unbelieving, those who put us to death, those who are part of the kingdom of Antichrist, those who are opposed to your will and to your way. In chapter 8, verse 13. And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to who? To those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, those who are to be the objects of God's continuing wrath upon those on the earth, the unbelieving. We could go on, but let me give you one more. Chapter 11, verse 10. 
And those who dwell on the earth rejoice over them and celebrate. Who are they rejoicing over and celebrating? The death of the two witnesses sent by God. Those who hate God's purposes, who hated their messages, who hated their witness, rejoiced. And it was the world of the unbelieving rejoiced at their demise and at their death. And we could go on. It's consistently used in Revelation. The point is to identify those remaining on the earth who stand in rebellion to God and rejection of his purposes and rejection of his Messiah and of his word. Those who stand in opposition to his people. So this testing is something specific that is God's judgment on the unbelieving and rebellious at the time of his unique judgment on the earth. So this is, this is a very purposeful time of testing. It is a very purposeful hour marked by very purposeful events to test those who remain on the earth at the time that God unleashes this hour. Again, that will take up the rest of Revelation or most of the rest of Revelation to describe. It is a judgment anticipated by the prophets. It is a judgment that was anticipated in the Old Testament that was to come upon the world. Again, let me just give you a few examples of this. In Isaiah chapter 2, there's many places we could go, but Isaiah chapter 2, he says the common man has been humbled. Uh, In verse 9, the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. He goes on against the description of his judgment against the things that are emblems of strength in the nations, the cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, the lofty mountains, the hills that are lifted up, every high tower, fortified wall, the ships of Tarshish, and go on. Verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of man will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 19, men will go into caves and holes in the ground and so forth. In verse 21, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty when he rises to make the earth tremble this is a great day of judgment that will be a great day of humbling against all of the pride of man it's anticipated in the book of daniel at the end of the book we in the future are going to spend extensive time in daniel but listen to this daniel 12 1 Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. In other words, the the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the nations that they knew up to this point, the destructions that would come afterwards, there's going to be a uniqueness about this time. It's something that has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. This is a promise here to the nation of Israel that though there is going to be a great persecution that comes, it's going to come at a time when God has determined and it will be unique in its severity, a unique in its terror, a unique in its intensity and in its significance. Let me give you just one more. Again, many places, but in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. He says this, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. We're actually in the future going to spend some time just to understand day of the Lord concept, but, but listen to it here. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, the day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. 
all the inhabitants of the earth. It is a time of great judgment. It is a time of great destruction. It is a time that's been anticipated throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of the church as well. Jesus anticipated and picked up on this in Matthew chapter 24. This is the last one, but let me just let you note this. Matthew chapter 24, you're familiar with the Olivet Discourse as it's known, where Jesus is anticipating events of the future, but he says this in chapter 24, verse 21. We could go to 24, 21. He says, But pray that your flight will not be on Sabbath. He's already noted back in verse 15, there's a distinct event that's going to mark this great time of judgment that's going to come at the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. He tells them to flee. He's speaking particularly of the wrath to be brought against Jerusalem and Israel at this time. And he says in verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. In other words, this is a unique time. It is a unique time of judgment that is coming upon the whole world. It is distinct in its intensity. It is distinct in its significance. It is distinct in its terror. It is directed to the unbelieving world. But notice this as well. And I just want to note here, the language of these passages makes it extremely improbable that it could be fulfilled in the imperial persecution of Rome or even the destruction of Jerusalem and extremely improbable that it is a, describing a kind of judgment that has happened many times in the world since then in some sort of cyclical way. No, it's something distinct. It's something unique. It's something specific. It's something that is marked out as never having occurred in the world Ever until this time. It will mark it out from every other destruction. So every horrible kind of judgment and war and destruction that God has brought about. He says doesn't at all compare to this. When it comes it will be marked out as being unique. But notice fifthly here as well. It's a time he describes as a test. It will test those who are on the earth. Y'all are... Familiar with this word, the noun would be parasmos. It could be test, it could be trial. The context determines what the use of it is here. It's the verb form. But anyway, the idea here is that it's a time in which he will test the world. He will test the world. What is the purpose of this test? Well, what is the purpose of any test? The purpose of a test is to prove the reality of something. If you take a test in school, the reality of whether or not you studied or whether you understood the material. You take a test, it's going to show. That idea test is used often to refer to the church. He says that your faith may be tested and proven to be as gold, he says to them in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's going to test the quality of your faith. In 2 Corinthians, he says, test yourselves to see whether you be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. In other words, put yourself to the examination of what God describes as the reality of true faith and see if you pass that test. Here it is a test, however, that God is giving. It is a sovereign test by God. It is a sovereign test to come upon not the church specifically, but upon the unbelieving world in the future, upon all those who dwell upon the earth. And it's going to prove the reality of who they are. Now, let me just expand on this a bit. In a genuine test, one is noted, I'm quoting here, this is a good summary statement. Both faith and opposition must be open possibilities. Testing means that both faith and unbelief are possible. And indeed, we see that even throughout Revelation, while this test is coming upon the unbelieving world, the response to this test is both faith and rebellion. Repentance and the refusal to repent. Again, we won't go through all the passages. Let me just give you some examples. Those who responded with repentance are those who were faithful to their death to the end and immediately received into the presence of God. Verse 9 of chapter 6, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They cried out with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? 
they had responded to the message of salvation in Christ even amidst all of the great judgments that had come upon the world. In chapter 7, he says this. This is the last one I'll read. But again, speaking of a great multitude that came out of the tribulation, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count, from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hand. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb. And then those are described as, who are these? He says, my Lord, in verse 14, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there are those who, in time of this great destruction, will come to realize the reality of their sin, and they will come to trust in God's promises and be saved. And they will be ushered into his presence. Some will experience these judgments most and refuse to repent and hold firm in their sin. In chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither hear nor walk and so forth. Verse 21, they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorcerers nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. They experienced the judgment of God, the difficulties and yet they refused to repent. That's the epitome of the fool, isn't it? He says though a, a fool should be struck a hundred times and yet it will do them no good. Because there's no fear of God in their heart, Proverbs speaks about. And so it is with the heart of man, unchanged by the Spirit of God, will rebel rather than be properly humbled by his judgments. This will give you a couple more in verse 16. Actually, this one. I heard the angel of, verse 5, the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And that latter group here, the one he's addressing in Revelation 16, is really the focus of the time of testing and the word of Christ to the church at Philadelphia. Now, why would he be testing them? Why then would they be the focus? Why would the unbelieving world be the focus of God's testing? Why is it about, what is it about the unbelieving world that God would want to reveal? Let me suggest this to you. Their unbelief and their refusal to believe. One has stated it this way and then we'll... The purpose of the future testing will be for God to test those who dwell, test those dwelling on the earth to expose them as the kind of people who are so adamantly opposed to him that they will never repent no matter what is done to them. Through that exposure, God will demonstrate that these people deserve his eternal punishment. So in essence, the very quality and purpose of this time that is coming to test the earth, which is focused on the unbelieving world, has as central to its purpose the exposure of the unbelief and the rebellion of man and thereby justifying God and the wrath that he is to bring upon them. That's what he says in verse 16, uh, chapter 16. Righteous are you and righteous are your judgments. Why? Because they killed your prophets and your saints because they would not listen to you. The witnesses came and they killed them. Your people were on the earth who experienced your salvation and you put them to death. And so what is a righteous judge to do? What is a righteous God to do? What is a holy God to do against such wickedness? Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians. Let's see, I think this is isolated, also referring to future. He says in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians, he after he's just said that, you know, you've persevered. You've, they were commended in verse 4 for their perseverance and faith in the midst of the persecution and inflictions which they endure. Remind you of the church at Philadelphia. He says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Look at verse 6. 
For it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and listen to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at by among those who have believed. In chapter 2 he says this. There's one who's coming in verse 9 whose activity is in accord with that of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, deceptions and wickedness of those who perish. Listen, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, therefore God will send on them a deluding influence and so forth. He says, they did not believe the truth, verse 12, but took pleasure in wickedness. In other words, this is the consistent theme to say a part of this great day, and there in Thessalonians he's looking to this future day, this great day, this time of judgment that's going to be associated with the return of Christ, with the return of Christ. Come back to that lately, but same in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 3. He ends right after that, I'm coming to test those who dwell on the earth, and he reminds them, I am coming quickly. He connects it to his return. And so part of the judgment here. And the testing, the purpose of the testing for those who are on the earth is specifically to reveal the heart of unbelief and rebellion and justify God in his judgment of those who refuse to respond to the word of mercy and of grace. Let me give you just one out of the Psalms. This is always striking to me. He says in Psalm 98, Let the sea roar, verse 7, and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The righteousness of God's judgment is the terror of those who stand in rebellion to him and the joy of those who know him because it is an establishment of true justice on the earth, of what is right and what is good And what is true. So the purpose of the testing then. Is ultimately to justify God. To declare the righteousness of God. And the justice of God. When he brings judgment upon those. Who refuse to respond. And he's saying to the church here. This is the time of testing. That you are being spared from. This is the time of testing that you're being spared from. So the sense then is this. Christ will keep you from a unique period of judgment from God that is coming upon the world in the future and which precedes the word, the return of Christ at the completion of this age. Now, what we'll make clear, get to next week is to answer this question. What does he mean that he will keep them from it? What does he mean that he will keep them from it? If this is a time of unique judgment and distress and destruction that is coming upon the whole world that has as its particular focus the revealing of the hearts of those who dwell on the earth to reveal to them the rebellion and to justify God in his judgment that he unleashes on them and on the world. Which by the way, I just a little footnote there. The justice that God brings is personal. It's not impersonal. It's a holy God who is offended. It is a holy God who responds to that offense in this way. But here it is, this hour of testing. And so, in what way then will they be spared? Well, that's what we'll look at next week. But here, let me just remind us of this. Let me just at least give us something out of that to take with us today. And that is this. One is that there is a time of unique distress that is coming upon the world. How foolish it is to get caught up. I think for all of us as we grow in Christ, the ability to be impressed with the vanity and the silliness of this world and the wickedness of this world becomes more and more ridiculous. It is a world that is passing away. 
All that glitters in this world, we're thankful for many of God's blessings, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the things that attract and drag sinners down, that would drag our own hearts down if it were not for the grace of God. The sin that is paraded evermore before our eyes and counted as something good, we're going to... We're going to actually spend a message on that in, in several weeks, in a few weeks down the road. But, but here it is just to say this. This is a world that is destined for destruction. It is a world that is destined for destruction. And we need to remember that to think rightly and clear-headedly about the things that we love and about the things that we pursue. But also this. It is a reminder that God has promised to us that we are not forgotten in the times of suffering. That God is very aware of it and that we please Him and that we show ourselves and prove ourselves to be His by this simple fact, our endurance. The greatest test of salvation, certainly there's love for the brethren, there's conviction of sin, there's a trust in the grace of Christ, but ultimately that manifests itself in this in a life that has the characteristic of obedience. That's what it means to be in Christ. To have a life that is characteristic of obedience, that perseveres, that fails but gets back up to follow Christ, that sins but trusts in Him again, not just to feel better but to follow Him and to obey Him. To persevere under trial, to not cower and lack courage in the face of a cost for following Him. And Christ sees it. He indeed enables us to live that way. He keeps his own and it's not forgotten before him. There's no sacrifice that is forgotten before him. And it is a reminder of this as well, that God brings things into our life to prove us, to shape us. In reality, this testing that has to come upon the whole world that for many on the world will be the cause of their judgment and the proof of the righteousness of their judgment is for believers an opportunity to grow in understanding the great goodness and grace and kindness of God. Uh, listen to this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And what is the hope what is the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts? That is understanding this, that while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the unrighteous. He died for his enemies. In doing so, verse 8, he demonstrated his own love toward us. And he demonstrated this as well. Listen. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we exult in God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. And the proof of our having received that reconciliation, of having received the status of no condemnation in Christ Jesus, is that the trials, we can exult in them, we can endure them, we can persevere in them and through that perseverance display this, the proven character of one who has been brought into union with Christ, of one who has received his salvation, been reconciled to God, has received the love of God, is growing in that love of God and is able to live with a hope that transcends present circumstances and reaches forward and grabs those promises and brings them in now. The promise that we have been spared from the wrath of God and brought into the sphere of his love and his kindness and his mercy and his grace. And so that's what this church was displaying. That's what every faithful church displays. That's hopefully what 
you and I are displaying in our lives, whatever trials may come, it is a test. It's kind of like you used to see at the end of your TV, this is only a test. Remember back, well, some too young, but the TV used to turn off at midnight. Remember, this is only a test. And they'd top of the TV. And so it is when God brings these things into our life. And so we honor him in our perseverance. We prove ourselves to be his. We know that we're not alone. And we rejoice in this. That we've been spared from the greater. The greater. The greater consequence of rejecting Christ. And experiencing his wrath. No, if we know him. We know his love. And we know his grace. We know his mercy. And we'll never know anything but that. And so may we rejoice in it. Let's pray and then we'll pick this up next week. Father, thank you for your mercy to us. Lord, these are sobering words to to realize that there is a time that's coming upon the earth in which your patience will be brought to an end in a sense. Your time of waiting will come to an end. And the time of requiring from your image bearers, the consequence of rebellion will, will come and your wrath will be unleashed. But how delightful and merciful as we see throughout Scripture that in your greatest judgment we also see the greatness of your salvation as many na- people from nations and tribes and tongues will by your sovereign work be rescued to Christ, in Christ and be rescued from the greater wrath to come, not merely that which comes upon the earth, but that which comes to those who die outside of Christ forever. And Lord, your wrath is severe, but your grace is glorious as well. And so I pray, Lord, that we, all who are in the hearing of these words, would be those who have placed our faith in Christ, to be shielded shielded from the wrath to come eternally, who can hope in the promise to be spared from your wrath upon this earth, earth and who have a hope that is secure and steadfast that produces perseverance that produces obedience that produces a a life that is marked by hope and a sure foundation in the few for the future if any do not know you lord then we pray that you'd rescue them from the deceitfulness of the pleasures of wickedness the deceitfulness of this world and show them the glory of christ as we read in second Corinthians. And to that end, we pray to your everlasting glory. Amen.